all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. <coughs> you, can, <laughs> you can follow us. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch at All Bad Things Pod. Email us at allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Join our Facebook discussion group, our Discord, and our subreddit. Do all of those things. <laughs> this is a this is the third episode we've recorded in, in twenty four le- hours. I was gonna say in less than twenty four <laughs> hours, right. I believe. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's got to be done. <laughs> it doesn't actually have to be done, no. but we like to. <laughs> yeah, we have high standards for ourselves. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> we have medium standards yeah, ourselves. That's, that's good enough. <laughs> Moderate standards. <laughs> yeah, that's good enough on a podcast. Mm-hmm. What are you drinking today? I am having the uh, greatest, finest national local beer. Mm-hmm. What doth you be drinking? I doth be drinking using one of the wonderful ah. koozies I received in our gift exchange from Nicole Y. Thank you, Nicole. Lovely, lovely gifts. I am drinking a Simple Truth Organic, that's the Kroger store brand, kombucha. Strawberry lemonade with live probiotics, exclamation mark. There you go. It is USDA organic and non-GMO. That uh, koozie is being put to good use. It is. It's fun. It's a a cute little pattern, the cats. Yeah. I like the the Velcro koozie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll fit any size bottle that way. Pretty yeah. much, yes. Mm-hmm. Unless it's a uh, like one of those Seven Eleven like sixty four gallon. Oh, gee, like, like big gulp. <laughs> like, yes. Won't fit that. I don't think so. <laughs> no koozie can fit a big gulp. No. Somebody's probably tried though. <laughs> probably, probably. All right. So, <clears throat> as I was finishing up this research, part three of the Mariel Boatlift, mm-hmm. I swear we could have gone on to port part four, part five. I mean, we could go on and on on this. It could, so. have, it could have turned into, into Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> yes. Episode, a prequel. Episode three, we could have gone back. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So we had part one, which was, do you remember what? Los. Uh, revolutionaries? A bit close. Revoluciones. Revoluciones. But you're right. Revolutionaries. Yes. Then we had two, which was. Uh, citizens? Something like immigrants. Like, immigrants. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Los inmigrantes. Oh, okay. We have part three today. Viva Cuba Libre. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, again, if you haven't heard the first couple episodes, please listen to them. They put all of this into context. Um, so, in 1980, the lives of approximately 125,000 Cuban people not to mention their friends, family, the entirety of South Florida, let alone the United States writ large, were permanently altered when an ill-conceived sudden mass migration was allowed with little regard for those actually emigrating. Sources are BritannicaHistory.com, the National Archives, (coughs) still working on it, sorry, Wikipedia and World Atlas. Okay, I did not intend for this to go (laughs) three episodes, but I am really glad... That we were lear- we've been learning what mm-hmm. we have about the long and tortured history of U.S.-Cuba relations. Well, at the end of the first episode, we were kind of torn on Castro a little mm-hmm. bit. By the end of the second episode, he revealed himself to, you know, as the as the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Well, he goes full blown dictator yeah. in this episode. So, yeah. um, I mean, we could argue all day as to why this happened and what part the U.S. played in it. Which is to say a very large one, yeah. but uh, but yeah, so I was born in South Florida, mostly grew up there, and I feel like this research journey has honestly put a lot of things into perspective for me. Sure. Or as they say literarily, in sharp relief. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know they did that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so we are finally 
getting very close, very, very close to actually talking about the boat lift. Teensy bit of pre preamble here, okay? So where we left off last week was that things were locking down again on the Cuban side, 1973, right? After the freedom flights, Castro was not letting people leave the U.S. freely, though the U.S. still had special accommodations in place for Cuban refugees entering the States to gain easier permanent residency than immigrants from other countries, also caused a bit of a issue with other countries, right? I'll bet. Mm-hmm. We also learned about the Camarioca boat lift, where Castro was just like, fine, you want to leave, leave. Go ahead. And it caused a whole clusterfuck, mm-hmm. right? Well, as we have seen approximately one trillion times in the course of human history, we simply can't seem to learn our lesson. So let's go ahead and repeat it, shall we? <laughs> so by the latter... <laughs> after you. After you. No, after you. After you. It's so, like the Spider-Man meme. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, the dueling Spider-Man or mm-hmm. whatever. So by the latter half of the 1970s, emigration to the U.S. from Cuba had been shut off for several years, except for the few who tried and occasionally succeeded to cross the waters between the countries by boat or raft. Despite the extremely chilly state of United States and Cuban relations, President Jimmy Carter... The great diplomat, who actually would have made a much better diplomat than a president. Probably. Tried reestablishing diplomatic relations with Cuba. So both countries essentially established embassies in the other country. But it was done very oddly. Um, So in 1977, the year of your birth. Yes. The U.S. established. The the year the earth was graced with my presence. (laughs) (laughs) The U.S. established the. United States interest section of the embassy of Switzerland in Havana. So in other words, inside the Swiss embassy in Havana was like a mini U.S. embassy. (laughs) Why not? And then, reciprocally, Cuba established the interest section of the Republic of Cuba inside the Czechoslovakian embassy in Washington, D.C. So they both had like... Mini embassies, like little Russian nesting dolls. Uh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you just open one up and, oh, there's another there's one. There's another one. Look, there's another oh, embassy in here. <laughs> this one's even smaller than the last one, mm-hmm. but it's there. Now, interestingly, and I did not know this, the trade embargo remained in place, but Carter started lifting the travel ban to okay. Cuba. Did not know that. Yeah. So now. That, so That commie. <laughs> So we're starting to get some olive branches here and there, right? Some reciprocations, some give and take. That was immediately challenged when Cuba supported and contributed to the Soviet Union's military interventions in Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. Yep. Now, even despite this, Carter still tried to work toward diplomacy by easing the trade embargo on Cuba. So the U.S. was allowed to export some medicines to the country. Uh, And Cuba was experiencing, at that time, food and medicine shortages. Because when you are essentially cut off by trade from the rest of the world, it's a problem, right? You're going to have food and medicine shortages. Likely. Um, Interestingly, when I talk to my parents about what I've learned about U.S.-Cuban relations and the role the U.S. played in making life so rough on people in Cuba, my dad specifically cited, like, people having to wait in food lines and I was like, yeah, that's because the U.S. basically cut off Cuba from the rest of the Western world. So, anyway. <laughs> We've also had that problem here. Yeah, Yes, we have. Yes, in the past, indeed. Yeah. Well, and we still have people dying of starvation in America, so yeah. there you go. Anyway, so while Carter, very much to his credit, tried to help the people of Cuba, Congress was against him, even though, ironically, through his entire administration, Majority House... And oh, Senate was Democratic. Was Democratic. Yeah. Exactly. It was all the way up until Clinton. That's right. And then um, it flipped his second term, was it? Or... No, it was first term mm. in 94. Mm. The midterms. Gotcha. Um, so regardless, some diplomatic baby steps were made. Cuba released a longtime U.S. prisoner accused of being a CIA operative, like literally held back since like the, the 60s. And... allowed 55 people who had emigrated to the United States as children to come back to Cuba, which was something that was a giant no, right? If you defect, you're dead to us, was the policy, right? 
So it was, it was kind of a big gesture in that case. Um, uh, both countries managed to agree on where to draw their maritime border. And the U.S. allowed Cuban Americans to send up to $500, which is around $2,200 today, to relatives in Cuba who are trying to emigrate. Cuba slightly eased emigration restrictions and agreed to release 3,600 political prisoners and allow them to leave the country. So things are starting to ease a little bit, right? Like, uh, maybe. Like, maybe, maybe. Um, (laughs) Then a Hollywood actor came into office. Uh, no, this this all happened before. No, I know. I'm just saying that that would happen. That eventually. that will happen eventually, and he yeah. will ruin our entire country. Thanks a lot, Reagan. But yeah. by the mid thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ronnie. <laughs> by the late '70s, things were actually looking kind of promising for relationships between the two company countries. Not companies, all them. Yeah, I mean, these days. <laughs> I mean, being genuinely on the mend. Minimal tourism to Cuba from the states was allowed via one-week cruises. And American tours were organized for the 1979 Carifesta, the Cuban Festival of Arts. This improved relationship, however, did nothing to help the international grudges that Cuban people were getting preferential immigration treatment in the United States. Especially contentious were Haitian-U.S. relations. Plenty of Haitian immigrants... (laughs) Who don't we have contentious relations? So, like, other than Canada. Right. And, 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 <laughs> and they're and, just nice to everybody. <laughs> and even, but, but we're even, like, trying to make that happen. Just, oh, yeah. Just be, for the oh, fun yeah. of it. Like, what would it be like if we, uh, like, pissed off, like, our, you know, biggest trade partner? I, for one, love the Great White North. <laughs> yes. Just saying. I will be there next week. Doth we all. By the time this comes out. Anyway. <clears throat> um, so, plenty of Haitian immigrants had landed in the U.S., and they were deported. They were turned back. Because they were like, hey, what gives? (laughs) Well, they were considered economic emigrants, not political refugees. Well, well, if economics were fine Mm -hmm. everywhere, guess what? There'd be a lot less of. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I mean, you you create the conditions for people to emigrate, and then you bitch about them doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So the people of Haiti were arguing. We are living under a de facto dictator, Jean-Claude Duvalier. And <clears throat> they're like, we are just as much political refugees as Cubans, but America was not treating them that way. So this next section I call Panic at the Peruvian Embassy. All right. So in the spring of 1980... So, so, uh, panic at the Peruvian disco. Yeah. In the spring of 1980, Carter's re-election campaign is heating up, Right. Uh, and so or, was... Or is it cooling down? Well, <laughs> well, and so is discontent in Cuba. Mm. So while things were improving with the U.S., the economy of Cuba was not doing well. What was a, a, mar- a big marker of the 70s economically? Inflation. Huge, oh, especially, huge inflation. especially during Carter's term. Yes. And the predominant... And, and no gas. Well, yeah, but it, the predominantly agriculture-based Cuban economy was not holding up to the strain of rising costs and low worker morale, right? You need a lot of labor to do agricultural work, and if people aren't feeling it... morale certainly helps, and if at the end of, like, a 12-hour day, you're getting, like, five cents. uh, Yep. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty low morale. Yep. Uh, And there were strict wage restrictions in place in Cuba, and the government also instituted food rations, yeah, see, we're, we're, we're on our dictatorial well. streak. Well, no, what we are on is, like, here's what happens when you're completely isolated from the rest of the world. Sure. But, and, uh... But Castro and his boys were doing fine. Like, they had food. Oh, of course. I'm yeah. not saying that. I'm just saying that we're we're not yet to full-blown dictator. Yeah. We'll get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, And the over, our overall standard of living for the people of Cuba was not high at this point. So as is very typical, (coughs) social unrest increased as the economic situation continued downward. Some people became really desperate to get out of the country and groups of people started trying to force their ways into embassies to claim political asylum. Uh, Most of the embassies just, (coughs) I'm sorry, just turned the dissidents down on the pretense that they were petty criminals. Like, that's it. Like, hey, you tried to force your way in here. Ergo, you're a petty criminal. Bye-bye. 
Um, but it, it, they were just really disallowing dissidents, right? Because sure. Cuba was essentially locked down at this point. They weren't letting people go, and other countries weren't letting them in. Um, however, the embassies of Peru and Venezuela flipped on their previous, you know, like, yeah, no, we won't let anybody out. They're like, okay, you can claim asylum and we'll take you to Peru or Venezuela. And that drew Castro's ire, right? He's like, excuse me, that's not what you're supposed to do. It's like, uh, hey. Yeah. In May of 1979, several asylum seekers crashed a bus into the Venezuelan embassy to try and get in. And that gave Castro's regime the opportunity to post heavily armed national police officers. Now, at various times, they may be called police officers or soldiers. Same difference at this or point. Federales. Yeah, the federales. To protect the Venezuelan and Peruvian embassies, shooting at people trying to break in. Things came just to a massive head on April 1st, 1980. Six Cuban people seeking asylum drove a city bus through the gates, like smashed into the just gates like of in, the Peruvian compound. Just like in the movie Speed. What gates did they crash through? Well, they jumped over a, a freeway, so that's close enough. <laughs> You're just thinking of a city bus. That's yes. the only way it's similar. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, not at all similar. <laughs> well, I mean, there wasn't a bomb on board, and they didn't have to constantly go 55. But other than that, it's kind of close. The, literally, the only thing is the city bus. That's the only. Yeah, well, that works. The only. It's a thread. <laughs> it's a vehicle. <laughs> um... So the resulting battle between the dissidents and Cuban police resulted in the exchange of gunfire, the death of one Cuban federale, and multiple injuries. So obviously, none of this sat well with Castro, who started... <laughs> no, I'm sure he was like, oh, I'm fine with it. Oh, this I'm is good. <laughs> I'm good. So beginning in 1976, he was now the self-appointed, not democratically elected president of Cuba. So, and we would never see him change out of his fatigues from uh, yeah, there on out. Yeah, basically, right? Now, we talked quite a bit in the first episode about how some of what Castro enacted in Cuba was actually very positive for the bulk of the population of the country. We also talked about how the U.S. hugely contributed to causing major problems in Cuba and how we mostly just wanted to maintain control by a large presence in the country. So everything leading up to this moment still very much stands, but what is awfully hard to excuse away is what Castro did next, which seems, frankly, very, very much the reaction of an emotional dictator, and it's probably one of the actions that would show the the bad side of his regime very clearly more than anything else, right? Castro was just basically pissed off by all this. And I love how people are like, women can't be leaders. They're too emotional. <laughs> you know what? Anger is an emotion, too. <laughs> and a lot uh, more deaths happen when someone's angry. Uh, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So he was sick of the previous embassy incidents. He was extremely pissed off by the Peruvian embassy crisis. At first, he's like, you know what? Fuck you. If you try to force your way into an embassy, you will never leave this country. They're like, we will fucking... Throw, throw you in jail and lock the key and you're never leaving. Congratulations, right? Then, again, showing his emotion, he completely 180'd his, his position. In a very shrewd... <laughs> it's just like, sorry, I was having a moment. No, 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 listen to this. No. It's a very shrewd dictatorial move. Mm -hmm. oh. Castro removed all Cuban protection from the Peruvian embassy. Ah, I Fine, see. you want to go to the Peruvian embassy? You go to the Peruvian embassy. And let them deal with it. Well, and let thousands of people descend on mm. this, like, 22-acre area or whatever it was. Uh, it was a 2,200 meters. Some, I, 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 it was a small compound. 22 acres is too big. Anyway. And, well, after, though, so he removed all the, all the soldiers, all the federales, but he organized, quote-unquote, protesters mm. at the embassy uh, to wait outside of the embassy and attack those entering in. All of this majorly threw the Peruvian diplomats in Havana for a loop. There were six people working in this embassy. Jesus Christ. And they were immediately alarmed for their safety. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, as well as there were already 25 asylum seekers who were just staying at the embassy, like on an emergency basis. By April 5th, 500 people had made their way to the embassy. And that morning, Castro met with Ernesto Pinto Bazurco Rittler, the head of the embassy. They negotiated, and as they did so, the number of asylum seekers arriving at the embassy swelled into the thousands. Oh my God. Castro was particularly unhappy with this because it undermined his narrative that people wanting to leave Cuba were the lowlifes, the scums, the worms, right? Apparently, uh, <coughs> quite a, a few number. people in a small amount of space just to even have a chance, like mm-hmm. it was a lottery. Yeah. Yeah, and the, yes, exactly, exactly. So he closed the embassy the next day, but 10,000 people were already occupying the compound. Mm. Um, I've got a picture here. <laughs> this, this compound was just yeah. overrun by people, yeah. right? It was not to meant say the least. to this is hold not that a, many people. This is not a house party in the OC. No. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> this whole thing has like... Actual consequences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to try to mitigate the situation, government officials were like, hey, you go home and we will get you visas. Oh, and that worked uh-huh. for some people. Okay, sure. A couple thousand people's, people left, but it didn't work for everybody. But over the next few days, conditions at the embassy just deteriorated horribly, right? This facility well, is not, not meant for 10,000 no, people. No, <laughs> it's not meant for like... Ten hundred people. There's six people working there. It's <laughs> yeah. not a big facility. Um, <laughs> it's, no. Like and this, then the Cuban not going to work. The Cuban government cut off access to the embassy, meaning they weren't getting food. <laughs> yeah. So, so it just was like, like star- a horrible. Like starve them out, basically. Um, and that resulted in more people taking the offer to go ahead and wait at home. But meantime, this is all going down over several days. The international community is like, fuck, what do we what do we do? How do we respond to this? Peru was like, hey, we are granting asylum to the refugees. So did the US, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Spain, and Venezuela. Um, so by April eleventh, Castro's regime is like, fine, we're we're letting them all leave. Let them all leave. He he seems to do that like fairly often. Like, okay, like what like okay. whatever. You know what I think it is? It's like a cat and mouse, right? Yeah, a little bit. He's like... I'll let some of you... Let's see how this yeah. works. Oh, that's yeah. not working. Let me try something else. I'll let some of you go. And then and then after <laughs> that, you know, mm-hmm. now you just can't leave. And he'll do that like every, I don't know, every decade or so. I think he's a combination of emotional and manipulative. Well, I mean, yeah, he's a fucking... He's a dictator, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And, he's a combination and right of quite now, a few things. Right now, he is very much acting like a dictator, right? Yeah. So, okay, everybody was allowed out, but things were not going to suddenly be okay after something like that, right? And Castro was especially not going to just let that happen and do nothing about it. So he exponentially ramped up his anti-U.S. and anti-immigration rhetoric and propaganda. And in doing so, he galvanized his reputation with Cuban Americans, as well as the rest of the world, as a hateful and horrible dictator, sure. right? This is he goes full dictator here, yeah. full tilt. This this is uh, <coughs> this is uh, this is going full. Uh, let's hold a rally on January sixth. Well, I think he's smarter than those people, to be honest, which makes him a lot more dangerous. Hey, the, those people haven't been charged yet, so. <laughs> well, neither is he. He made <laughs> it to his old age. It's true. He did get a lot of assassination mm-hmm. attempts, though. He's a rat. He did. (laughs) Um, The entire embassy crisis also further isolated Cuba from many South American countries, including, of course, Peru and Venezuela. So he was now... (laughs) Up to including. Yes. Now universally billed as a dictator, Castro was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to lean the fuck in. So because the rest of the world had opened their doors to refugees from Cuba... Castro decided, you know what? I'm going to pull another Camarioca. He's like, you know what? Fine. 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 On April 20th, 1980, he announced people could leave. Anyone could leave. Two conditions. You have to leave by the port of Mariel, mm-hmm. which is west of Havana. He fucking knew what he was doing. 
one port and not the main, not like the biggest one either, right? Fucking knew exactly what he was doing. And two, you got to be met by, by relatives, right? You have to have somebody claim you, sponsor you, right? Um, but Castro had a third agenda to use his dictatorial savvy to also rid the island of the people he considered, quote, undesirable. Sure. <coughs> now. Meaning they're not going along with the program. Well, so it is very much worth noting that while Castro did a lot to advance civil rights by integrating Cuba racially, he can go fuck himself because he was a big old homophobe and transphobe. Yeah, he tore all that down, too. Well, no, just specifically here. He's transphobic and homophobic, specifically. Uh, For sure. So fuck him. He wanted to get anyone deemed to be homosexual or having any non-gender conforming characteristics off the island. And he went a step further. It wasn't just, oh, you can leave if you want. People who were deemed by officials in whatever capacity, right? And sure. this could be any, this, it could yeah. be anybody. Yeah. Um, There's a whole range of options here. Right. It, they could just say, oh, I suspect you're trans. I suspect you're gay. Whatever. It could be, literally be anything. They would tell them, you've got two options. You leave through Marielle or you go to jail. Mm. So it wasn't even a choice at that point. People were being forced. People of the LGBTQ community were forced out of Cuba at that point. So, so we've finally arrived at our topic. It, well, yes, we're at the boat lift. We are at the boat lift. You're right. You're right. Now, that's horrible, of course. It is. But some non-LGBTQ plus people were also like, so all I have to do is say I'm gay and I get off the island? So... So some people went that route. Okay. <laughs> like it's also another way to go. <laughs> of course, gay people weren't the only ones that Castro considered to be undesirable. He also took the opportunity to deport convicted criminals and people who were held in mental institutions. It is also worth noting that people were convicted of crimes for a lot of different reasons, not all of which were just. <laughs> I was going to say right? and most of them were probably bullshit reasons. Mm-hmm. Most of them. Likewise, who knows what they, who they were locking up in a mental institution at this time, right? And stateside, honestly, there wasn't a hell of a lot Jimmy Carter could do about it. He had said that the U.S. was going to take some of the immigrants from Cuba, and he had already started travel, easing travel restrictions. So yeah. all the U.S. could do at this point was really just... <laughs> just watch it. <laughs> tr- well, try to properly process sure. this mad dash of refugees arriving from Cuba. The very first wave of 7,500 Cuban people actually were able to get on flights, processed in Costa Rica, and then taken to the U.S. But that's a very small number of people. The Cuban government then made it a rule. If you leave the country, you have to leave yeah, and they, go. No, no. You have, to leave, you have to leave directly to the country that you want to end up. You cannot go to a, an intermediary hmm. location to be processed. In other words, the U.S. was handling a lot of the immigration processing in another country. And now they're like, uh-uh, you process, process them on U.S. soil. And so <laughs> things were pretty horrible and chaotic at the port of Mariel. Pro-Castro protesters hurled insults and sometimes punches at those leaving. Here's some people uh, protesting the people leaving Cuba. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I know. I mean, it's they, they've created their own version of Squid Games, essentially. They, it's something. I don't, uh, yeah. A degree of that. A much lesser degree. Nobody's playing. Not as many people fought <laughs> yeah. to the death. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, but survival was on, obviously, everybody's minds. It, it, was, it was kind of chaos and every man for himself at this point right yeah many cuban americans arranged to have boats sent to the port of mariel and they started arriving in key west on april 22nd so remember he said you can start leaving on april 20th the next day the first boats were arriving within a few days hundreds of boats had descended on mariel on the cuban side the government had fishing boats and other vessels Clearly not made for transportation. Packed up with refugees and sent across to Florida. 
by Mace. You're, you're still. I didn't get. You're still Shut traveling. Up, <laughs> uh, you're still traveling in the ocean, by the way. Oh yes. So Open if you're in a vessel ocean. that's not made to do what you're trying to do. None of these were. Yeah. None of these were. Um, by May 5th, President Carter, in a move that at least was very consistent with his diplomatic leanings, agreed to welcome any and all refugees into the United States, quote, with open arms and open hearts, end quote. Wow. I think it's amazing. I think it's fabulous. I, mean... <laughs> I think he also should have opened it to Haitian immigrants and basically well, everybody else, know, but yeah. we've talked about that. Um, but uh, I mean, again, imagine if Fox News existed. Well, it didn't have to. It really didn't. He was already painted as, yeah. This was one of the moves that screwed him over that November, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It is often cited as one of the reasons he lost to Reagan. Sure. In November, so. Um, Very interestingly, I was talking with my parents tonight uh, and my sister about... um, Yeah, they would know. The Mariel Butliff. My parents, yes. And I'll I'll get to that in a second. (coughs) But my dad said that, or my mom said that my dad's brother's wife's dad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my aunt's. <laughs> I know it's a my my aunt. Sure. Her dad was a, a longtime fisherman. He like very much so. I I remember the guy. And uh he was going to take a boat down to down to Marielle. That was his that was his plan. And my right. dad was furious. Because most of the people, well, most, many of the people, and I'm not sure if this was my aunt's dad's motivation, were being paid by all sorts of under-the-table dealings to do that. Yeah, that's not surprising. So these captains, some were probably very much humanitarian-led, but some were very much mercenary-ish, you know. In that, so I thought that was interesting. Anyway, unlike the Camarioca boat lift, the Marielle boat lift lasted several months, from April to October of 1980. Wow, yep. so that's six months. Yeah. People arrived in South Florida in all manner of vessels. Sure. <laughs> right? Rafts. Like we, you we, uh, we watched the beginning of Scarface. We did. I didn't even know <laughs> that that was the thing, but on in Scarface. That's how the movie but, opens. Yeah. Um, often Horribly overcrowded uh, to a U.S. immigration system not initially ready. Not even close to, to process able to handle this. Three thousand people per day. Yeah. Initially, yep. Not so, let's show you some pictures. I mean, we just watched footage, right, from Scarface, I guess. But here's. Hey, at least they're uh, mm-hmm. seem happy. At least. Well. For the time being. Centers and the processing centers. Down on the bottom there. Wow. Yeah. So that obviously, is, that is obviously a shipping hangar, <coughs> right? Well, so they yeah. needed these huge yes. processing centers, mm-hmm. right? Um, all of a sudden, like immediately, yeah. like now, yesterday. Um, so they had to use whatever they could find. Yep. They used the Miami Orange Bowl. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Back when it was around, um, Elgin Air Force Base in Pensacola. And multiple decommissioned nuclear missile facilities. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you're. You, you do use what whatever do. huge spaces you've got, right? Yeah. Um, NGOs, including Catholic Charities and the American Red Cross, assisted with helping refugees reunite with their families stateside. Florida Governor Bob Graham declared a state of emergency in Monroe and Dade counties. Monroe County is where the keys are. Dade County, now Miami-Dade County is where Miami is. Carter backed him up with a federal emergency declaration and $10 million, or around $36 million today, in federal disaster relief. Okay. In response to an increasing... So like, gave him resources. Yes, yes, imagine. Yeah, huh? <laughs> um, in response to an increasing outcry from those also wanting to leave Haiti... Haitian immigrants were given the same legal status as Cuban refugees beginning on June 20th. Okay. Very interestingly, my parents got married June 21st, 1980. The next day. Okay. My mom said she remembers the week of her wedding like everyone was talking about. Mary (laughs) Hope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially where they were. Like, this this whole thing is happening, like... Oh, 
right in front of them, pretty it's much. In, they live in Miami, so yeah. yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately... So it's not like today where, like, somebody in Idaho would be concerned about it. Like, these people coming in from Florida... It's like, dude, you're like 1,500 miles away. Like, it's never, well, like it's never coming close um, to you. It affected a lot of people, and we'll get into that. Sure. Um, unfortunately, given the conditions of the journey these boats with questionable seaworthiness were taking, it didn't take long for the first loss of life to be recorded. That yeah. doesn't mean it was the first or definitely not the only loss of life. And they didn't record them all, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Or didn't know about them all. Yeah. You know. So on May 17th, 1980, the Oloyumi, a boat carrying 52 refugees, sank on its way to the States. Of those people, 14 died and the rest were um, rescued by the Coast Guard. By June 3rd, 1980, or about six weeks into the Mariel boat lift, 100,000 Cuban refugees had reached the shores of the United States. Wow. 100,000 people in, in six, six weeks. weeks. And the bulk of the refugees who had arrived in this boat lift, right? Because it was mm-hmm. 125, so. Uh, it's, <laughs> that's, that's, just, that's, that's a staggering number of people. That's 17,000 people <clears throat> per week. Like, just just uh, just under that. It's wild. It, it's just absolutely wild. And it's such a condensed timeline, such a huge number of people. The consequences were equally mm-hmm. staggering. Some directly caused by the boat lift, some exacerbated by it. Sure. So President Carter negotiated with future president. <sighs> Who do you think? Well, we, we know it's, it's Ronnie. Uh-uh. Oh, future president of where? The United States. Who maybe was, oh, a governor of Arkansas in 1980? Oh, Bill Clinton. Yes. Carter negotiated with future president and governor uh, I, I, of Arkansas. I, 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 I can I confuse future with next president. Hey, yeah, nope, just a future president. Okay. Bill Clinton to open up the Fort Chaffee Maneuver Training Center in western Arkansas as a refugee processing center. So when you're saying like it's not affecting people in um this is this is fucking True. Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, I was I was wrong on that one, wasn't I? Initially, Clinton didn't want to oblige, saying something I sure fucking hope he regrets now. Quote I doubt it. Are you ready? And wait for the whole quote. Sure. We still have a base at Guantanamo, don't we? Take them to Guantanamo. Open the door and march them back to Cuba. End quote. Thanks, <laughs> President Clinton. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's 1980. Now, we like obviously it. have very different feelings about Guantanamo. <laughs> well, I mean, that strategy, like, that would come to fruition just 20, 21 oh years later. But for very different reasons. But the the main thing to take away from 9-11 after 3,000 people died and a major national monument burned to the ground mm-hmm. is that George W. Bush kept us safe. <laughs> he was reading to children and then in the air the whole time. Imagine selling that and, be, and being successful at it. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that's what those people were thinking. Yeah. Jumping out of the building. Like, yeah. hey, W, he's kept us safe. Jesus. So, at any rate, Clinton eventually agreed, uh, and around 20,000 refugees were transported to Fort Chaffee. This is like bumfuck Arkansas on the eastern border with Oklahoma. Oh, sorry, western border with Oklahoma. I mean, I have been to northwest Arkansas, but that, it's all that's fine. But, but it's all brand new. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm in, sure it didn't look that way in 1980. In 1980. You're a Cuban who doesn't speak English. Do you want to be going to the Midwest? In Arkansas. You're going to the deep Midwest. You're going to the South Midwest. Pretty much. You're going to the Confederacy. Yes, yes. You're going to the Confederacy. (laughs) Exactly. So things got off to a bad start because the first arrivals were greeted by local KKK members. (laughs) Hey, they're always there to welcome people, aren't they? With ropes. Yeah. Then the center was plagued with horrible delays. Some people eventually had to wait there for, like, months to get processed. Um, Some didn't even come close to waiting that long. On May 26th, hundreds just, like, escaped. They just escaped the center. They technically were not undocumented. So they could not be captured. Because they had been processed. Well, they had been granted refugee status. So they were not undocumented. Yeah, exactly. (coughs) Or so-called, quote, illegal aliens. So it was kind of like they they took their their, uh, 
spirit of freedom and literally mm-hmm. ran with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we're good. Here's the problem. <laughs> Here's the problem about leaving at least a guarded place for bumfuck Arkansas. You're gonna if you're a Spanish speaking Cuban person, you may be in a little bit of trouble. And um, they were. They encountered some unfriendly and armed Arkansans. Uh, and they eventually... So they had the true American experience. Yes. Well, except for one thing. They eventually went back to the center after some very non-American, non-violent police intervention. That's not exactly... Well, Nobody died yeah, that's... in the encounter with the police. It's wow. odd. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, when they got back to the center, these lovely Arkansans turned violent and started pushing them over the fence into the center. The KKK arrived later with signs that read, quote, kill the communist criminals. <laughs> so, like, KCC. <laughs> exactly. The, they could have just yeah, spelled yeah. communist and criminals yeah, with they, a K. They could have. <laughs> I mean, they, they might have. They probably did. Mm. These, aren't, these are not the brightest people. Um, These are not our best and brightest. No, uh, the United States is not sending its best. (laughs) 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 Like, the welcome wagon is... Like, can you imagine, like, the stories that these people had amongst each other? Like, we got dropped off, you know, speaking Mm -hmm. in Spanish, like, we got dropped off in this part Mm -hmm. of Oklahoma and a bunch of dudes in white sheets showed up with guns. Like, who the fuck are these people? Can we go back to Cuba? Yes. We were safer in Cuba, just for the record. Shit, like, at least that wasn't happening. By June 1st, the refugees at the center started their own protest, marching and chanting Libertad, or Liberty. Libertad. The state police, the state police, just to be clear, the Arkansas State Police incited violence by beating the protesters who retaliated by throwing rocks at them. In America? So, just to be clear, the cops were the bastards here. Oh, like they usually are. As will always happen, the police opened fire. Protesters lit fires. Things eventually died down that night, flared up the next morning. Now, these cops must have been just bad shots because somehow only one refugee was killed in the incident. Um, And 40 were injured. One fuckwit civilian, in other words, a racist piece of shit, was injured. Fuck him. And 15 stadies were injured. Frankly, fuck them if they were beating people, you know. Well, I mean, if they they caused the the whole reason they're Mm -hmm. in this fight in the first place... Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the whole, uh, it's the meme that's the uh, fuck around and find out Yeah, uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, okay, mm-hmm. you fucked around and they weren't willing to back down, so now what? Yeah. Well, Clinton would obviously ultimately, ultimately go on to have the last laugh by becoming president. Yeah. He was defeated in his gubernatorial re-election that year. Right, and then mm-hmm. he became governor again. After that? Yes, uh, in 84. Or 88, he just I needed think. a little distance just, yeah. from this whole yeah. fuckery. An INS officer, that's the precursor to, what are they now? Ice. Ice, that's right. <laughs> Abolish ice. <laughs> um, an INS officer was quoted in People magazine. The fuck is an INS officer doing talking to people? Anyway, saying, quote, 85% of the refugees are convicts, robbers, murderers, homosexuals, and prostitutes. Quote. <laughs> Fort Smith, Arkansas mayor, that's, uh, Fort Smith is near Fort Chaffee. This guy's name was Jack Freeze. Jack Freeze. Not Jack Frost, Jack Freeze. Either way. He said, quote, people here didn't decide, sorry, people here decided they didn't want the Cubans before they saw them. The press had already said they were bad. I knew they couldn't be productive. There might be a Desi Arnaz or two out there, but mostly they were going to be killing one another. End quote. Okay. In other words, these are a couple racist motherfuckers. So uh, both of these people, as well as many Americans, were dead wrong and racist as fuck. Despite Castro wanting to get rid of his quote-unquote undesirables, only 2.2% of the Marielitos, that's what they call people from the boat lift, mm-hmm were denied citizenship due to having committed serious and or violent crimes. 
I was going to say, they, they processed all these people. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, unless they got through that, which, I mean, that's how also how Scarface opens up. <laughs> right. He gets through the processing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's stoking fear where it's not necessary. Uh, so is Scarface, by the way, because it said that out of 125,000 people, 25,000 of them had criminal records. Sure. Now... That potentially could be technically correct because maybe people were getting could thrown a, into prison for all sorts of things in could Cuba. Be a traffic I don't know. Ticket. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's falling into this narrative, right? Sure. Um, in Overtown and Liberty City, which are historically black neighborhoods of Miami, <clears throat> things were coming to a horrible boil over a completely unrelated incident. About five, same old story, same old song and dance, my friend. It's kind of funny, though. Like, Liberty City is known as New York City in the Grand Theft Auto games. Yeah. No, it's a a neighborhood in in Miami. But about five months prior, what do you think happened when six white police officers made a traffic stop of Arthur McDuffie, a 33-year-old black insurance salesman driving a motorcycle on a suspended license? Uh, They... Said hello to him. Um, like, how you doing, sir? And they were like, how you doing? Do you realize your motorcycle? Your mo- your, or your license is suspended. Your, your motorcycle license is suspended. And here's a ticket and be on your way. As should have happened. Oh, wait, that didn't happen? Uh, yeah, shocking, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. Um, wait, did they beat the shit out of him? And killed him. Oh. They beat him to death. Oh. That's exactly what happened. Um, I'm proud to be an American. Now, the cops, of course, said shit about, oh, what he did. I don't care. <laughs> There's six of them. <laughs> and no one deserves to die because of a suspended license. No. Period. End of. Let the fucker go. That's fine. It is a suspended license. He's not a violent criminal. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Um, as should be, as is completely expected... A jury of all white men acquitted four of the officers for involvement in his death. And also, completely unexpectedly, no one in Overtown or Liberty City were happy and made that known by what they historically call riots, I would call a protest. Or uprisings. Uprising, uh uh-huh. It has been posited that one of the things that added fuel to this protest was that... So this is in... This is early May of... um, 1980 there's it's posited that a lot of what fueled this protest beyond the injustice um was that a lot of social political and economic resources in south florida specifically in miami were being siphoned off to help the marilitos and not black people especially given the previous grudges about cubans receiving preferential treatment over haitians yeah. Haitians who are generally of African descent. Yeah. And have darker skin. So with at least 18 people left dead from this uprising and $100 million in property damage or uh, about $363 million today, it was the deadliest urban riot until 1992 in Los Angeles. Mm. So... These are just a couple of examples. So this was even deadlier than Watts. Cause yes, Watts it was. was. Pretty... Uh, that was 67, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something like 67, 68. Mm-hmm. Right in there. It was deadlier than Watts. Yep. Um, I've never even heard of it. Same. And I grew up... <laughs> I did not grow up in Overtown or Liberty City, but I, I grew up in South Florida, so... You grew up in the region where you might have heard about it, you know? I mean, this was before I was born. Right. But yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and these are just a couple of examples. The... <laughs> yeah. God, yeah. If, if I kept going through the social issues wrought by the boat lift, we'd be here for part four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. <laughs> well, I mean, you could even have just, you could even have that as the overview of the, the topic. Yes, right? You know, exactly. We're, we're just talking about the actual event that happened. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and context. <laughs> Plenty of context. Well, well sure, but, still, but yeah. you could do like mm-hmm. just, uh, you could do like a 57 part podcast oh, yes. on just the socioeconomics of, oh, the, yes. of this. Oh, uh-huh. Um, just to touch on some other incidents, I mean, like you were talking about Scarface, they established tent cities, sometimes a thousand people or so. Um, hunger strikes were made by refugees held at detention centers. And then just thousands and thousands and thousands of stories we haven't even heard. 
about what happened. Really real human consequences to 125,000 people, their friends, their families. Uh, It's, it's, it's incalculable. That's what it is. is. On September 25th, 1980, because at this point he's just a whimsical dictator, he shut down the, Castro shut down the boat lift. We're done. 600 people were stranded at the port waiting. I'm surprised it was kind of that few. Well, they were finally able to make their way to Key West at the end of September. They were finally accepted by the U.S. in mid-October. However, there was a fair number of immigrants who were not processed until 1987. Mm. That's seven Mm. years. These people were mostly who both Cuba and the U.S. considered, quote, undesirables, and the U.S. wanted to deport them. There was even a total of 478 people who were detained by the United States until 2017. 37 years. Um, In a staggering but not necessarily unexpected violation of human rights by the United States. So it is impossible. Is is that a blemish on our human rights record? (laughs) Um... (laughs) We're actually looking for where are the bright spots on our human rights record at this point, you know? Hey, did we mess that one up? Oh, man. Sure. It is impossible to overstate the impact of the Mariel boat lift on the fabric of the whole of American society, let alone the literal transformation of South Florida. About half of the Marielitos stayed in Miami. Yeah, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. quite a population boom. Ma- it majorly impacted the labor market, too. But interestingly, after it's been studied, the net effect of this mass immigration to Miami has been considered economically neutral. It was not a drain on the economy. Sure. Um, wages remained stable for white, black, and Hispanic and Latino people. And when wages actually dropped for black and Latino people in comparable cities. So... Uh, millions of federal dollars were put towards educational and other assistance to recently arrived refugees. 71% of Americans polled disapproved of the airlift, or boat lift, I said airlift, boat lift. The general disapproval was reflected in the polls that November when Jimmy Carter was defeated by fuckwit Reagan, who used the boat lift very much to his advantage two different ways. First off, he talked on one side of his mouth and he was like, look at this disaster, how horrible it was. Other side of his mouth, oh, look at these wonderful refugees trying to escape Marxist-Leninist communism. Uh, yay America, yay capitalism. Yeah, they so figured, they, glad they, that they, man is dead. Well, he was also a vessel and like, just being like, you can say whatever you want. Nobody's really going to challenge it. Like, for some reason, nobody had ever come up with that before, before him. And he was just like, sure. God, fuck that man. I wish he would uh, come back to life so I could stab him myself. Well, like, like he was in the Jesus. one Call of Duty game. And I was like, if I can shoot him, Yeah, I'll do I get it. to assassinate? <laughs> It'd be worth the 50 bucks. Jesus. <laughs> um, the boat lift also kicked off the resurgence of the longstanding English-only movement, which is... I'm sorry, it's ridiculous and it's xenophobic is what it is. And if you think... And it's not English only. I, I mean, it's not. There are, we, we take in plenty of refugees or immigrants that don't speak English. You mean it's not just Spanish that we're against? Correct. Yeah, I gotcha, yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, and and um, it's such bullshit. It's such bullshit. I can't even... If you think that America needs a national language or that um, that people should speak English, check yourself. Just check your fucking self here. Yeah. Like, uh, for what it's worth, in my experience, it's actually a little harder to get around Miami only speaking English. It'd be better to be able to speak Spanish. It'd be a lot handier, but it's still perfectly fine getting around, and it's, it's fine. You can still communicate with people. Yes, I mean, and I... and you know what? I'm I I only speak English, and I'm fine that most people just speak Spanish. I mean, That's fine. Working in manufacturing, I've come across several people that I can barely understand a fucking thing that they're saying. And we managed to figure it out somehow. Just let people speak their language. <laughs> yeah, Who the right. fuck cares? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's never been a... I mean, I've never looked at it as like... I've never sat there and thought to myself like, 
man, all these people need to speak English. It's like, no, you need to just learn how to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. You know, even if people do speak English, you still need to learn how to communicate yeah. with different types of people. My dad and I are going to Scotland this year, and we were talking today about, oh, we may have a hard time understanding yeah. Scottish English. <laughs> well, I mean, and they're... <laughs> Thick accents. Well, not only that, they're, they're going to say certain... Words, phrases. Or tribal yeah. things. Uh-huh. Tribal meaning, like... It's no community thing, right? Yeah. That, that uh-huh. you just wouldn't pick up on. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, because you're not. Think Scott. of how many fucking in jokes we have. Exactly, that's what <laughs> I'm saying. We are to yeah. communicate with. So, it is estimated that the Cuban American population nationwide is 2.4 million, half of whom live in Miami. Wow. Yep. So, <laughs> go ahead and go say that we should only speak English. Fuck you. <laughs> Wow. I need to learn how to say fuck you in Spanish. So, emigration from Cuba and U.S.-Cuban relations have remained a hot topic in the decades since the Mariel boat lift. In the mid-90s, we saw the start of the highly controversial wet foot, dry foot immigration policy, which was basically an interpretation of the Cuban Adjustment Act of 1966. We talked about that last week. And this interpretation was like, basically, if you want to leave Cuba, if you were caught in the water by the Coast Guard before you arrive, you're going back. If you touch land, if you make you get the to land stay. somehow. It's like a fucking Hunger Games. Well, of that's exactly what it is. Immigration. Like, like if you make it to a sandbar. Yeah, right. That, that kind of counts. And this policy was epitomized by, of course, one of the biggest immigration crises after the Mariel boat lift. The Elian Gonzalez crisis. Um, uh, uh, incidentally, that also helped Al Gore lose his pre- bid for presidency <laughs> to, to be, Baby Bush. To be fair, that that was completely on. I own. literally said, along with some help <laughs> from the Supreme Court, and there's <laughs> yeah. some shit. Uh, but there have also continued to be massive and valid criticisms of how the U.S. treats Cuban refugees versus how they treat non-white refugees from the other parts of sure. the Caribbean, especially Haiti. Well, the, the the difference is the conservative party also treats them with a modicum of respect, which they don't do for any other... We talked about that last week. ...brand of immigrant, mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if you will. And but, uh, we talked about it last week. They yes, skew... Uh, Cuban-Americans skew Republicans. Yes, which is why which they... Which is highly unusual for the Latino community, so... Yep. So... Ready to learn a little bit? We're, it's just a little bit. I, I, we're getting near the end. No, but, no, um, I'm ready to learn a whole lot more. This is just... Well, let's see what's happened to Cuba since. It, writ large. Just, just a really quick overview. As for Castro, well, he lived to be very old, as we learned. But he stepped down from his presidency in 2011, appointing his brother, Raul, as his successor. Raul stepped down after Castro's death. Sometime, I forget what year he died. <laughs> and, then, um, and then Billy took over. Billy no. Castro. In 2018, and he was then succeeded by current president and first secretary of That's the right. Communist non- Party of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, the first person who is not a member of the Castro family to serve as the president in 60 years. That's crazy. It is. In 2019... The Cuban people voted overwhelmingly in favor of a new constitution that instituted multiple changes, including the recognition of private property, banning discrimination based on gender, race, ethnic origin, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. And, my God, this I want for our country. I want this for the United States. They instituted a maximum age of 60 for any first-term president. I mean, that's not the worst thing. I mean... It is ageist, and it is wonderful. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with this. I'd put, I'd put that cap at, like, 70. Mm-mm. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's si- ageist, si- and I love it. Yeah, si- 60-some-year-olds <laughs> are still, uh, depending on who you're... I, I, I think 60 is a great... Hopefully I'll be spry in my 60s. I think 60 is a great uh, cutoff there. <laughs> Many other civil rights were restored, including the presumption of innocence if you're no. arrested. What? Uh, the right to legal counsel 
Upon arrest, yes. They uh, due you're, process, you're right habeas corpus. I yes. mean, like they they literally instituted a lot of <laughs> yeah, see, basic human they're, rights. They're instituting yeah. shit that we're getting rid of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the fucking sad thing. And here's the thing: Cuba is now defined as a socialist republic. Now listen to this sure, sentence: okay. "Quote, where all members or representative bodies of state power are elected and subject to recall." And the masses control the activity of the state agencies, the deputies, delegates, and officials, end quote. Okay. Sounds pretty fucking awesome, if you ask me. Uh, The people. Well, right. The power to the people. That's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. (laughs) I know. We can't because we don't have that. No. Um, So as someone who was born in South Miami in December of 1984, I learned none of this. So learning of the history of the Cuban and Cuban-American people is absolutely fascinating to me because this is not just Cuban history. This is American history. Of course. American policy that was poorly enacted and failed thousands and thousands and thousands of people, both in the United States and in Cuba. With immigration remaining a hot topic in the United States, we're just going to keep going around on this very go round again and again and again until we, the American people, come to realize the control our leaders are exerting internationally to contribute to the untold human sure. pain and suffering of other people is a problem we need to stop. Well, that would be the one way to, that that'd be the first way to stop mass emigration or immigration into our country is like stop bombing other parts of the world. And, Stop and intervening. Right, and you'll have less refugees. Which, <laughs> like. Humanitarian intervention is one thing, military intervention is something extremely different. Yes, and we need is. to cut it the fuck out. Yeah. So I would very much like to echo the subtitle of this episode Viva Cuba Libre, whatever that looks like, whatever that means to every Cuban and Cuban American person the world over. Viva Cuba Libre. Now, my friends, is the end of our story, our telling of the Mariel Boatlift. Quite a story. And, yeah, it could have gone eight episodes, ten episodes. Yeah, it's could really could have <clears> easily <throat> gone four. Yeah, four for sure, but... And again, I mean, you could take a... There are so many different angles you can take on the story, too. Mm-hmm. You could take a an angle of well what has happened to our society since then because right. of mm-hmm. these you can you can take yes absolutely you know uh-huh. i mean you can take just florida politics what has happened to florida politics since then mm-hmm. because this had a huge i mean this is basically this is one of the main reasons that florida is a red state now right because mm-hmm. I mean, now because now you have second or third generation cubans you know so you also have the fucking rednecks in the northern part of the state mm. but but i mean the, the thing is like Immigration is so assimilated into our country now that now that you now you have like you know second and third generation Cubans right. who are uh-huh. who are political forces. <laughs> yes, that's very true, and that's like I think it's really hard to describe to anyone who didn't who hasn't lived in Miami how much it is just the norm for. There's a lot of Cuban people. <laughs> There's like Cuban American people. You know that that's just how it is, and it is this weird microcosm. Half of all Cuban Americans live in Miami. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. You know that really is. It's it's it it's it creates what Miami is, and that's why I always say that Miami is not like the rest of Florida, let alone the rest of. The country. It is its own little country. It is, but it, but honestly, I in just the short time I was there, I, I think of Miami as this. Miami is almost like the bellwether for the rest of the country because Miami is like a true melting pot. Everybody's there. It is very much, and you're absolutely you right. White there people, are people, Hispanic from people, all Cuban people, uh-huh. African people. You had, mm-hmm. like you run into all sorts of people. Just I, we I was there for what we were there for a couple of days, a week, or yeah. Something. And mm-hmm. you got used to just seeing different people. Well, it's so funny that you're like, you got used to it. 
I'm you used you to it. Yeah, you didn't know any other way. <laughs> no. Yeah. It was really weird. When where, I, I, where I grew up, you saw white people, and that I was know. it. <laughs> no, when I... I didn't understand that. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't understand that. <laughs> I bet you didn't. <laughs> when, when we first moved up to North Carolina, when I was 21, I was freaked out by how many white people were around and how everyone spoke English. <laughs> it was really weird. It, it was like, I was culture shocked moving here from South Florida. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I, you know, some people love it. Some people hate it. It, it's, it is a, it is a very unique place. And to see some of like a little portion and not little because they're, the, the Cuban community is huge in South Florida, but, um, but you could do this with. Haitian Americans. Sure, yeah. You did this with Jamaican Americans. Yeah. yeah, there are so many people groups, like you said, it's a real melting pot that that's what makes South Florida so unique. And it's really hard to describe to other people what it's like to live there. It's one thing to visit. Yeah. It is another thing to live but, but there. But even visiting there, like you could feel like the difference in you could just yeah, feel it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like in the mm-hmm. there, there's just a vibe to it that you, I've never felt uh about any other type of city. Yeah. It, it, it is. It's a it's a cool place. It's a complicated place, but it's a cool yes, place. Yes, complicated. That's to be the least. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, right? Yeah. Um, and I really appreciated learning more about sure. where I grew up. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. And uh, we never learn our fucking lesson. It's never. Well, we, we will in the next coming years, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, not happening ever but a, a fascinating three-parter i i hope i hope the audience found it as fascinating yes, as we did me too <laughs> did not intend for it to be a two-parter let alone a three-parter okay. but i i think it was sufficient in being a three-parter yeah i mean it's and again we could do 58 more parts mm-hmm. if we if we wanted to yep but that was part three of the Mario Boatlift titled Viva Cuba Libre. Viva Cuba, <laughs> Viva li- Cuba Libre. Libre. Yes. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week. And Viva Cuba Libre. See. Si.